I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3 Post Media's Canadian News Podcast. On this episode, the two big drug topics that are front and centre in the minds of Canadians are the coming legalization of marijuana, happening October 17th, and the opioid epidemic, which has seen thousands die of overdoses from fentanyl and other deadly drugs. Is there anything that can be learned from Portugal, which decriminalized all drugs following a wave of overdose deaths in the 1990s? It's Tuesday, September 18th. Daphne Bramham is a columnist for the Vancouver Sun, and she spent a week in Portugal working on a seven-part series looking at that country's drug policy. So Daphne, Canadians may not entirely be aware of how drugs are treated in Portugal, or they may have a partial understanding about it. So first, can you break that down for us? Well, I think Canadians have a lot of misconceptions about what's going on in Portugal, and and then there are a lot of Canadians that have no idea what Portugal's drug policy is. But mm-hmm. what happened in Portugal is um, at the end of, in the at the end of the 1990s, they had a terrible heroin crisis. One in ten. Portuguese people was addicted to heroin. Wow. And um, they they decided that they really needed to take some sort of radical measure to restore order and restore civility, really, to their country. Um, it's a country of 10 million people. So they went through a series of, of consultations. Um, they brought in some experts. They bought it, brought in former addicts. They brought in um, doctors and various people that, that deal were dealing with these addicts. And what they came up with was a decision that they were going to do several things. And what gets a lot of attention is the fact that they decriminalized the use of all drugs for personal possession. Um, what doesn't get nearly as much attention is the fact that that what the, the reason that they did that is to um, begin to dissuade people from being addicts. And what they did in conjunction with that was they decided that um, they decided and they they convinced people through education that addiction is a chronic and relapsing disease, just like many others that we have. And because of that, uh, anyone who is an addict should be um, have access to universal coverage of any treatment that they need. Okay, so it, it doesn't matter if you're talking uh, marijuana heroin, cocaine. Um, If you're caught with a certain amount, you don't go through the criminal justice system. You go through a separate drug dissuasion system. Yes. And I I think what's really important is that that there are people that before I went to Portugal um, had said to me, oh, well, you know, it's just an open drug market there because they decriminalized you. You know, you can get drugs everywhere. They're on the street. The reality is, is that if you have drugs, any amount of drugs and you're found by police to have drugs, they take you down to the station. They weigh your drugs. And if it um, comes within the set limit for personal possession, you are sent the next day to something called the Commission for the Dissuasion of Drug Addiction, where you will be interviewed by a social worker uh, for about an hour, and then the social worker will um, make recommendations, and you will appear before a tribunal, and they will decide what what might work for you. And amongst the, the treatments, I mean, some of the treatments are no treatment at all. I mean, sometimes they'll say to you, well, well, well it's okay, so you had a bad day, right? <laughs> or you had it and you were just having fun. Um, but a lot of times people go in there and they say, you know, I'm having, I'm having, I don't have a place to live or I don't like my job. Um, I'm having domestic problems. Um, my kids aren't doing well at school and I'm just using this as kind of a release. So what they do, what the tribunal, what the commission has the 
the ability to do is to put the to provide them with any kinds of services from help with housing to help with employment to to dealing with the root causes of to dealing with all of the root causes of of why they're using drugs including the fact that they may just like to use drugs and and they're going to try and help them not like drugs so much or to try and stabilize their lives so that they don't become addicts. Hmm. So this is anything other than alcohol and and cigarettes. That's right. This is, That's okay. right. You've, and and if you and if you have more than the amount um, allowed for personal possession, you go you go through the criminal justice system and you're charged you're charged with either tra- with trafficking or drug dealing. Now, what made you want to look more closely at Portugal's drug policies? Oh, we have chaos in Vancouver. We have chaos in Vancouver. I mean, we've this year we've already had 1,100 people die on this, of, of fentanyl overdoses. Uh, you walk in the downtown east side, it's open drug market. I was there two weeks ago and I saw three drug deals in three blocks. Hmm. Um, there are people... There are people who are in the throes of of really horrible addiction. I mean, they, this is this is not the pretty addiction down there. I mean, there are there are lots of addicts who are who are getting by every day and they're going to work and so on. On on Vancouver's downtown east side, these are the people who are no longer getting by. These are these are the people who are who are most desperately in need of help. And for the most part, um, what what they have can look forward to is that. Um, we do have safe injection sites where they can go and and get a clean needle and they can shoot up in an environment where if they overdose, someone will be right there with a naloxone kit. Um, we have pop-up naloxone um, stations. Um, all of our emergency people have have vast experience now, uh, now that we're three years into a public health crisis. They've vast experience in resuscitating um, some of these addicts and, and some of these um, users of a variety of drugs that are fentanyl tainted um some of them are being revived two or three times in a day wow that's it's hard to imagine you know when people talk about um harm reduction and wanting to provide a safe space for addicts so they're not overdosing um or they're able to be revived that's not the image that a lot of people bring to their minds right away. It sounds a lot worse, <laughs> for lack of a better word. It's horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, one of the one of the people who I spoke to in Portugal, two of the people I spoke to in Portugal, have now been to Vancouver, and both of them said that that they've never seen anything like it, or what they saw in Lisbon um, was similar to that. But they said it wasn't it wasn't in the center of the city, and. And it just didn't have all of the surrounding. Like it, it, it wasn't. It wasn't kind of normalized. And I think that's that's one of the things that's happened, at least in Vancouver, is that that this street scene has kind of been normalized. But, um, but when we talk about the crisis in in British Columbia and across Canada, the opioid crisis, the reality is is that what's on the downtown east side is really just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, most of the people who are dying in this of the in this o in the opioid opioid overdose crisis they're people that are dying at home mm-hmm. they and they're dying at home because they are addicted to drugs and they're still somehow functioning and they they are the ones who also need help 
they're the majority. These are the these are middle class people. These are people that you might work with. I mean, it's it's in, the opioid crisis goes far far beyond what's on the downtown east side. The downtown east side is just sort of the the apocalyptic version of it. Now, I do want to come back to some of what's going on on the ground here in a sec, but to divert back across the Atlantic, in your week in Portugal, what was it that surprised you the most based on your experience here in Canada? In all the time I was there, I think I only I only got that sweet swell smell of marijuana, I think only once in Lisbon while I was there. I really? mean, you can't walk down the street in Vancouver without smelling it on virtually every block downtown. I didn't, so there was none of that. There's no open drug use. Um, there's no open drug selling. Um, there's a lot of alcoholism. Uh, for sure, you see signs of alcoholism, which, you know, both in, in Portugal and Canada remains the biggest addiction problem that we have. Yeah. Uh, but all of the, uh, they have none of the street disorder. And I think the other thing that is surprising to me is when I spoke to people in Portugal, just ordinary people, I said, what would you do if you saw someone, you know, smoking up or injecting in the park? And they said, "Oh, I'd, I'd I'd go up to them and tell them that they needed to, they should get help. That they that first of all, they can't do that here, mm -hmm. and secondly, I tell them how to get help. Um, and if they said they if they weren't going to march right up and tell them what they should be doing, um, they said they'd call the police. And they had full faith that when the police got there, that the police, um, the first response of the police would be to try and direct them into some sort of care if they only had drugs for the for personal possession. We'll be right back." I want to tell you about a discount we're offering exclusively for 10.3 listeners on all Post Media digital subscriptions so you can get access to more great reporting on the legalization of cannabis and other issues that matter to you. When subscribing to the National Post, Montreal Gazette, Ottawa Citizen, Saskatoon Star Phoenix, Regina Leader Post, Edmonton Journal, Calgary Herald, or Vancouver Sun, just enter the promo code PODCAST and you'll get 50% off a one-year digital subscription. It's a great way to stay informed. Again, that's promo code PODCAST. So despite having what's perceived as a somewhat liberalized approach to drugs, and they're held up by decriminalization proponents around the world as a great test case, they don't exactly have a permissive attitude when it comes to drug use in Portugal. No, for them, decriminalization was really a it's it was a it, it was a gateway for them. Um, by decriminalizing drugs, it meant that um, you could you could actually find a, a quick uh, a fast road to treatment, mm -hmm. and it um, it created that system because the police are all, were already looking for people with drugs. Um, and what it did is it also saved money. And that's one of the things that people forget about. They think, oh, well, this uh, sounds like a huge bureaucracy. You know, you set up you set up this commission for dissuasion of drug addiction. You have all this free treatment. This must cost buckets of money. Well, in the first five years, it um, their costs, their social costs decreased 12%. And when they looked at it a decade later and included the um, savings in, through the court system, the re it, it meant a saving of 18%. So this is a way of, of dealing with a universal problem of addiction in a way that is humane, um, it's fair because everybody has access to the treatments, and it also saves money. I mean, it's it, it seems like a no-brainer, really. 
And it's not just, you mentioned free treatment, uh, trying to dissuade people from using drugs. There are a lot of other pieces in place that the state has implemented. I, you, you mentioned in, in your series, uh, there's a minimum wage, there were education campaigns, um, the decriminalization of drugs, there was free enhanced treatment and recovery options. Like it's a broader spectrum of services and supports for people than just trying to get people into treatment, right? Well, in, a, in addition to viewing addiction as a chronic recurring illness, what they, what the, the difference in Portugal is that they view everyone as a citizen. And what, do, what um, Dr. Zhao Galau, who is one of the architects of their drug policy, said is that, you know, every, we view them as citizens, and we know that as citizens that, that uh, when they're addicted to drugs, and when the only thing that they can think about every day is how am I going to get my next fix, he said, we know they can't be full contributing citizens. And so he said, our drug policy is aimed at them um, getting them back on the path to citizenship to uh, both give them their rights as citizens, but also so that we can we can restore them to the responsibilities of citizenship. And I think that's a very different um, view than what we're taking in Canada of 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 viewing them still most many addicts anyway we view them as the other there's still um, stigma attached to being an addict there's still a notion that that many people who are addicts it's their fault that they choose to do this and I think we still haven't despite um you know at least 10 years of experience in British Columbia with harm reduction, with, with safe injection sites and so on and needle exchanges, we're still not past that point where we don't kind of blame these people for, for being addicts. And mm-hmm. um, this notion of them being citizens uh, with rights is we have taken that part in Canada, certainly with harm reduction, that recognizes their right. But I think we haven't gone that next step, which is that... Um, that people who have uh, addictions problems that that they also have responsibilities to try to um, to be citizens. They have a responsibility to be the best citizens they can be. Looking at the issue in Canada, especially the safe injection sites around uh, the downtown east side in Vancouver, it seems that they're coming from a similar place to Portugal's policy. It you know treating addiction as a health issue, but. Canada seems to have diverged in how to approach that from Portugal. What is it that has seen us go down that route, do you think? Well, I mean, one one thing is that in Portugal, they they have no safe injection sites. Mm-hmm. Um, they decided not, they, they're, I think they're going to open a couple this year. Um, they had supposed, they were supposed to have been open this summer, but they didn't get opened. Um, they're still coming. But they don't. They don't want to help them be better drug users. Um, they want them not to be drug users. And you know, one of the things that that people um, in the the recovery community have said to me here is that that our policies to put so much emphasis on harm reduction to make it easier for people to um, continue to be drug users. That's part of what harm reduction has been here. And what what is really missing. Um, 
and, I, and I'm not opposed to safe injection sites or to needle exchanges. But what's missing here is that we're not moving enough of those people. We're not connecting people who are using those services. We're not connecting them with the next stage of service. We're not saying to them every day, every time when they get there, can we help you? Can we do something other than can we do something other than this? Do you need to go to a doctor for the sores on your on your face? Do you and when they say yes, I want treatment, the problem in Canada is that they're not getting treatment mm-hmm. because we've got these we've got these barriers to treatment. And the barriers to treatment for many, many, many Canadians, the majority of Canadians, the the barrier to treatment for addictions is the cost. Because if you want if you need a treatment for addictions. If you're in what's in one of those safety, in your you're in a job that that requires you to be to look after the safety of others. So if you're a pilot or a firefighter, or a policeman or a nurse or a doctor, if you're found to be an addict, if they think you have an addictions problem, your employer puts you into they put you into a private addictions treatment center faster than you can get on the bus, right? I mean, they put you there because because that's important. If you're really poor, you can get into treatment because the government will pay for it. But before you can get into treatment, you have to prove you've got nothing. They they have an income tested require they have an income testing requirement before you get into treatment. So the vast majority of us, like if if we don't have an employee an employee plan that covers something like that, if your employer doesn't pay premiums for that, if you're just some guy working at a at a job uh, that's paying you quite well, you have no way of getting to recovery. You have no way of getting to treatment because you would have to leave your job, you would have to pay, and to go for the to go into residential treatment, you're looking at about forty to fifty to sixty thousand dollars a month. Wow. So unless we create pathways for people, all people, to find treatment and resources for their the root cause of their addictions, as well as for the addictions themselves, if they get into a full-blown addiction, we're going to continue to have this problem. Is that one of the biggest takeaways for you on uh, what Canada could do to try to model some of its drug policy after Portugal, uh, the treatment end of it? Or where do you see Canada being able to to learn from Portugal's example? Canada needs to make it easy for people to get the treatment they need for a chronic recurring illness, whether that chronic recurring illness is, is diabetes or drugs. Mm-hmm. And unless we get to that, we can put all we can put all kinds of money into naloxone so that we can reverse the effects of fentanyl. But ultimately, if we're not going to get them into some, get them some sort of help um, and make it easy for them to get help when they're willing to go, they're going to just continue to go back into that cycle because getting over addictions is really tough. Anybody who's tried to quit smoking knows how tough it is. And, you know, the other, then the other end of the spectrum is at the very front end of the spectrum. And, Portugal has a very different social service system than we do. They have 
They have better, they have childcare, they have early child education, they have um, income assistance, they pay income assistance to the families of addicts who go to residential care. Hmm. So what we need, and what we need to do in Canada, I mean, we've got, we do have some unique challenges in Canada. First of all, we have, we we don't have a national system. Healthcare is, is really the, is the responsibility of the provinces. So it's very hard for a national government to bring down some sort of, uh, unless they're going to pay for it, um, to bring down a national plan. But that doesn't always work. I mean, there are different needs in different communities. Yeah. So we have that problem of our governance structure. We have a problem, too, that that um, we really, we don't really have these, we, we have... Um, we have a legacy of residential schools, which which accounts for um, a lot of an overrepresentation of of First Nations people in in uh, in the throes of addiction. Mm-hmm. So we need to address those problems. Those root again, it goes to the root causes. What are we doing to make sure that we're producing that we have a structure and a and a system? where we don't turn out traumatized people who are going to numb their pain with with cannabis or cocaine or alcohol or heroin and they they have so much pain that that at a certain point they don't they're even out looking for fentanyl. And you mentioned cannabis throwing a bit of a wrench into everything in Canada is the fact that come October 17th marijuana will be legal in Canada and in some provinces uh, like Alberta and, and Ontario. Um, we're looking at private retailers turning around to encourage the use of cannabis as they're looking to make money. How does that play out in your mind in, in complicating creating sound drug policy? Well, when I was in Portugal, I, I asked a number of the experts that we met there. Um, in particular, I asked Dr. Galau, um, what what do you think of Canada's legalization of cannabis? And he said, we would never have done that. Hmm. He said, we we still wouldn't consider that. He said, you know, we have enough problems with the legal the two legal drugs that we have, alcohol and tobacco. And he said, you know, we're making some headway in tobacco, but he said, we still have a long ways to go with alcohol. So um, people in the recovery community that I've spoken to in Canada they talk about well if you're going to, if if you actually support legalization of cannabis you better be supporting better and better funding and for more and better services for addictions because not everyone can just smoke a joint and and that's okay just like not everyone can have a glass of wine and quit after one mm-hmm. um there are people who are going to become addicted to cannabis cannabis in canada when when you ask the people in recovery and you look at the numbers cannabis is in the top three of why people go into into addictions treatment wow so daphne are there any other lessons that canada can take away from portugal's experience i think one of the most important ones and certainly um when i when i asked um experts in portugal what they would suggest for canada is they said you know, one of the most important things is that you really need to consult widely. Um, they said anything that we're doing in Portugal is not going to translate directly into um, what Canada's system is. What you need to do is you need to have this wide consultation. You need to have you need to have the community buy in. You need to have the politicians buy in, and and that's a really hard thing. Um, 
And one of the things that that they said was difficult was uh, in Portugal, when they did bring in the legislation, it was a a left-wing government that brought in the legislation to decriminalize drugs and all of the um, adjuncts that went with that. But the decriminalization was so, it was seen to be so radical that um, the United Nations nearly nearly, um, expelled Portugal from membership. Hmm. Uh, the European Union was concerned that that this would spill over into the rest of Europe, and they wanted to. They were talking about blockading Portugal. And what happened in Portugal is that people had felt so strongly about it, and the early results were so good that the politicians, when the government changed to a, quite a right wing conservative government, they kept the policies in place. And they kept the policies in place because the data backs it up. They have the lowest HIV infection rates in, in Europe. They have the lowest addiction rates now in Europe. What it's done, what it's done has been amazing for them. And it worked for them because they had everybody on side. And, you know, I think one of the things that has happened, certainly when we went through the process with a, over the harm reduction plan in Vancouver, there was a lot of conversation about it. And the harm reduction program in Vancouver really should have looked a lot more like Portugal than it did. Um, we kind of got a bit stuck on harm reduction. But there was buy-in then. Since that time, I really think that, that we haven't ha- been able to have these conversations about about drugs. We haven't had a, a really deep, informed discussion about um, addictions at addictions at all levels, alcohol, tobacco, and all of these illicit drugs. And it, until we come to some consensus about what needs to be done, and until we get the support from a whole lot of people, and including politicians of all different Um, parties and ideologies, it's not going to work. I mean, we have to find a way that's a unique policy for us and one that works for us within our existing structures. Well, it's a fascinating discussion, Daphne. Uh, Thanks. My pleasure. Here's what else is happening. The Federal Liberal Caucus has gone down by one. Toronto-area MP Leona Alislev announced she was leaving the Liberals to join up with Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives. In the House of Commons, Alislev railed against her former party for failing to live up to promises. Quote, My attempts to raise my concerns with this government were met with silence, she said. This government must be challenged openly and publicly. And a six-year-old girl snatched in North Battleford, Saskatchewan, was found safe Monday, about 13 hours after an Amber Alert was issued. She was taken Sunday afternoon while sitting in the back seat of her family's vehicle, which was left running. There was no immediate word Monday afternoon about any suspects. 10-3 is produced by Carson Jarama, edited by Carrie Ann Sproul, with additional editing from Nathan Martin. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.